remain standing for the reading of Scripture this morning. We return back to Mark chapter 9 as we continue our exposition here in the Gospel of St. Mark, straight talk about Jesus Christ. And we pick up uh, this morning in Mark 9, verses 24 and uh, down through verse 28. Let us hear and attend to the Word of God. Immediately the father of the boy cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him, and he became as one dead, so that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And we'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. In the life of Christian faith, from Mark 9, there is a short prayer that captures the deepest soul urgency informed by other passages of Scripture more fully, even as we looked at some Psalms this morning. And so we know this prayer. It resonates with us. We hear it immediately when we read in verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. So as we consider the episode that's before us, I believe that we have a kinship and we feel this, the pain and the uh, struggle of this father. We've talked about it as we've uh, t- come down through the previous verses. But what I want you to see, and I don't want you to lose this, is that the Father's impassioned plea is a prayer, begging in humility and repentance from saving faith. And that's what I really want to emphasize as we consider this Father's prayer. Saving faith is the source of all sanctified prayers for Christian believers. That's where we start. We cry out to the Lord. We come to him out of saving faith. And as he has saved and regenerated and changed us and given us a heart of flesh and uh, opened our mind and uh, renewed us in all these ways the scriptures refer to as a new creation and a transformation, it is out of saving faith that all of our prayers are thus sanctified as we cry out and we pray to God. Remember that originally this father came seeking Jesus. When he got there, Jesus was up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Down below, folks didn't know what was happening. The remaining nine disciples didn't know what was happening. But the Father originally came seeking Jesus. Came to to seek Jesus to help his son. I've suggested to you, and it's just a suggestion, but but this Father was a believing follower of Jesus. That's why he was bringing his distressed son to Jesus, trying to find Jesus, because this father came out of faith and belief, one who had been saved by the Lord Jesus himself. When he finds Jesus, when Jesus comes down from the mountain and the father finds him, he comes and he kneels before him and he addresses him as Lord. I don't think that was just a common salutation. I don't think that was just a a, a cultural nicety. I believe this father came kneeling and confessing, knowing that Jesus was his Lord and Savior, and he was his only hope for his son. He comes seeking Jesus to help his son. The father's prayer expresses both faith and repentance, together with acknowledgement and trust in the Lord alone. 
The father's saving faith leads him to pray for his son because he cannot believe for his son. He can't save his son. We've, again, looked into that previously about the helplessness of the flesh and how the father's compassion and love and concern for his son and the long struggle of years of trying to protect his son as the story he told Jesus let us know. That he comes because he knows only Jesus can save his son. Not just in terms of his physical malady, but also in terms of his spiritual condition. And here we are, faced with a a, a special case. This father trusts Jesus to save his son in body, soul, and spirit. The scriptures indicate to us here that there is a special case of uh, this boy's malady, of his um, disease, called uh, an epileptic or, or moonstruck or lunatic. Something causes him seizures. He has a disorder, a disease that throws him into convulsions and into seizures. But then there is also the complicated factor of a demonic presence, an unclean spirit that Jesus identifies as mute and as deaf. And the father knew something was going on because he says... This this unclean spirit, this mute spirit will cast him into the water, into the fire when he has a seizure, trying to kill him, trying to destroy him. And I, I want us to see the compound, overwhelming struggle that this father is explaining to us. That if it were not enough of this boy's condition to be so impaired as he was... And we talked about that. We've talked about how Scripture has sympathy. And we as Christian believers have sympathy for those who are struggling in various diseases. They may be physical or mental diseases and conditions. We believe all are made in the image of God. And all need Jesus as their Savior. You need to be aware and you need to hear carefully of the ungodly, wicked, and devilish voices that are saying that any... A fetus that is diagnosed with some disability or some chromosomal insufficiency with Down syndrome or something in the, uh, uh, in the womb ought to be aborted. We believe all are made in the image of God. We reject all such heinous, calloused kinds of views as of the devil. I'm going to tell you, those who practice and who believe such things, I don't believe they're demon-possessed. I believe they have listened to the voice of the devil and they have uh, followed the way of the world and in rebellion against God, they hate the image of God. This father is distressed. He has a son who is both uh, mentally, physically, and spiritually in a condition that he is helpless to save. The father can't save him. The boy can't save himself. Now, we made the point that we all need to recognize we can't save ourselves, we can't save our children and our loved ones. That's why we must come to Jesus. Now, in a moment, I'm going to give you another observation from John Calvin that I think is particularly insightful. I am preaching to you of a story that's over 2,000 years old of Jesus' public earthly ministry and of situations and conditions that reveal to us the truth of who Jesus is as the transcendent God-man, the being who is empowering the kingdom of God on earth, and who is the imminent Savior who is present with us beyond our physical senses, but by promise tells us, I will never leave you nor forsake you, and I am the power 
and the presence of your salvation. And so, whether it's 2,000 years ago, or whether it's looking at the insights of John Calvin from 500 years ago, or my preaching this sermon here to you today, the timeless theological truth of God is where we look to hear the message of salvation. We don't need to be fixed. We don't need to try to fix our world. I know we have concerns about that. We should have compassion. We should be engaged and we should be a voice speaking the truth of God against the very things that I'm talking about as evident with those who are so disabled or impaired and who are looked upon as subhuman. We need to speak up about that. But we need to also understand if we speak up about it, it is to further say that only Jesus can save us. It can never, that, that compassion can never take over. That human compassion can never take over from the message of the gospel. Why are we saying those things? Why do we view it that way? Why do I say to you that every baby is made in the image of God? Why do I say that to you? Because scripture tells me that. Because that's a timeless theological truth. And why do I tell you that every person born is made in the image of God, no matter what their condition, and that every person born needs Jesus as Savior? Because Jesus is the only Savior. I hope we have compassion that way. Uh, I want you to listen to the comments by Calvin as I said, 500 years ago, but are they not still pertinent to our life of faith? Hence it came to pass that he, the boy, put himself in danger everywhere. He was torn asunder and fell down senseless as if dead. From this we learn how many ways Satan has to harm us unless he is held off by God's hand. All the weaknesses of the flesh and soul, which we feel to be innumerable, supply him with darts to wound us. Therefore, we are the more stupid if our wretched state does not move us to pray. But the incomparable goodness of God shows itself in the way that although we are exposed to so many different evils, yet he guards us by his help, especially if we consider how fiercely our enemy burns to destroy us. But there ought to come to our minds this comfort, that Christ came to bridle his raging and that we remain safe among so many perils because the heavenly medicine is greater than our ills. Does it matter to you that Calvin wrote that 500 years ago? Has the issue that we face and the struggles that we contend with and the world, the flesh, and the devil, have they substantially changed from the theological truth that Calvin is applying here? Taking that from this lesson of the gospel. So we're not bound by time when it comes to these things. I do believe that there was an upsurge in demonic activity that God released or unleashed the, the demons and the devil uh, some degree to allow more of that to happen during Jesus' earthly ministry with the intent and purpose to show that Jesus destroyed, he came and he destroyed the works of the devil. I've told you that I don't believe that there is demonic possession today. I believe there is demonic influence. I believe the demons are real. I believe the devil's real, as the Bible uh, teaches it. But I believe that Jesus came and destroyed the works of the devil, and by his ascension into heaven, the devil's uh, um, leeway has been restricted. The way I've explained it before is like a mad dog on a leash. If you get within 
the range of that mad dog, you'll get mauled. But I believe that Jesus defeated and restricted the powers of the devil and of the demons. And we do not want to give credit to the devil where there is no due. I do not want to excuse people's sin and, and try to um, pass it off on the devil. Those who are lobbying and those voices who are clamoring for the destroying of children because they are deficient, because they are Down syndrome, or because they have other, other deficiencies in body or in mind, they're not possessed of the devil. They're just wicked. They're ungodly haters who want to destroy the image of God. You need to see it for what it is. And we need to speak up against it, but we need to say that speaking up against it, there is only one solution, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why I'm preaching to you 2,000 years later, 500 years on, I'm still preaching to you the same gospel and the message of hope and, and, and uh, of uh, salvation. So I hope that you connect with that and recognize that we make that application based upon uh, the truth that is revealed to us from Scripture. Look at verse 25. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. So once again, Jesus would not have his saving work made out to be a spectacle of worldly curiosity and sensationalized fleshly dabbling with the supernatural powers of demons. And I want to warn you about that, of those who try to take that kind of um, approach and they are constantly wanting to make spectacles of the things of God, trying to get, capture the world's curiosity. What are we going to gain if we capture the world's curiosity? If we compromise and if we lessen and we undermine the gospel of Christ? So what? We have the curiosity of the world and they're interested. But then we don't have a message that will save them because God will not sanctify error. We can come up with all kinds of schemes and all kinds of messages we can come up with any manner of uh, displays to try to get the world's attention. But if we don't have the gospel, they're lost in darkness. No matter how snazzy our new system may be. It doesn't matter whether it's technology or whether it's some other kind of uh, novelty of human interest. If we try to use those things to gain the world's curiosity but we've let go of the gospel, then they are not saved. The same thing is true about this fleshly dabbling with the supernatural. As I've said it, and I'm going to continue to say it as long as God gives me breath. The only spirit that you need to study and to, be a no, and to know about is the Holy Spirit. We don't need to study demons. I mean, there's, there's what the scriptures reveal to us and the things I've told you about uh, the, the reality of, um, of demons and the devil in scripture. We acknowledge it to be true. But there are so many who have gone off the rails trying to develop their insights and their particular skills or their dabbling into the supernatural. And many unwary Christian people have followed along behind that and have been so wowed by the flesh. The devil's power is the power to deceive. We're warned against deception in Scripture. We look to the light of God's truth. So we don't need to be dabbling into the supernatural. 
I've told you before that historically, as it's borne out in both the Old and the New Testaments, one of the uh, features of dabbling in the supernatural was the use of hallucinogenic drugs. It was a commonplace, almost a sacramental practice in false religions to use hallucinogenic drugs to try to induce altered states and to try to gain some kind of sense of, of, of uh, connection with the spiritual. It's deception. And we need to be warned against it. It's an old trick of the devil. And you see, that's think, I think one of the things that's revealed to us here is that this unclean spirit, this deaf and mute spirit in connection with this boy's disability was able to use those triggers. It's not fully explained to us, but it's suggested to us that somehow when there would be something or even if the, this unclean spirit was able to, in trickery and cunning, trigger a seizure in this boy. That during this seizure, the spirit would try to direct him to fall into the fire or to fall into the water to try to kill him. The father has explained that to Jesus. As a matter of fact, we're going to see in a moment, it happens again. I'm not denying the reality of demonic presence and to what degree of cunning and deception and, and uh, skill there may be active. And in this case, it seems that that was what was happening, that this unclean, vile, cruel spirit was taking advantage of the compromised and weakened condition, perhaps triggering seizures in this boy with an attempt then to try and kill him. I hope you get a sense of how desperate that is and what the father was dealing with. So Jesus rebukes this unclean spirit and he reveals in doing so that, that Jesus is the transcendent divine being empowering by his presence the kingdom of God on earth and heaven. That's what I'm saying to you, that Jesus is present with us. Jesus' presence with us is a transcendent presence. He's divine. With all the power of God, he's not like God, he is God. And so he empowers the kingdom of God on earth. He empowers the preaching of the gospel. He empowers the reference to the word. He takes the word of God. He takes the elements of the sacrament. He makes them powerful to his ends and purposes. That we by faith receive them as the Father prayed. I believe. Help my unbelief. It's interesting in the description here that we're told and looking into the grammar and the force of the, the phraseology in the Greek text that we're told that Jesus rebuked this unclean spirit. And that word rebuke carries with it a completed action in terms of Jesus' power. How can he rebuke this supernatural, unclean spirit? Because he has the power to do so. He is the Lord and power over heaven and earth and over the realm of the spirits. And Jesus, therefore, rebuked as a completed action this unclean spirit and goes on to say, I am commanding you. And Jesus' commanding presence is an ongoing action. It's informed by specific directions. In this case, by the imperative of majesty. I am commanding you to leave him and forbidding any possibility of recurrence and return to him never again. I am commanding you come out of him and never come back again. And I don't want you to miss that in terms of the, of the transcendent power of Christ 
and what that means for you and for me. Jesus gives us complete and fulfilled accomplishments in terms of his person and work and the promises of God. All the promises of God are yes and so be it in Jesus Christ. It is done. The power of Jesus' statement on the cross. It is finished. It is once and for all accomplished with continuing results. It can never be undone. And it doesn't need to be redone. And so here, Jesus goes on to say, with his imperative of majesty and forbidding any possibility of recurrence, don't come back. Never enter him again. Jesus' authority of commanding power over the supernatural realm of spirits, of angels and demons, is specific and permanent in relationship to his person work. And we've been talking about this past, present, and future in the context of the transfiguration. That He's come down from the transfiguration that was previewing his resurrection glory and power. And so after coming down from the past... This ongoing empowerment is present here in this episode with this father and son before his disciples in the crowd. And for you and me today, the ongoing empowerment of the new covenant, the gospel, the good news of Jesus' imminent presence with his church on earth. That's what our hope is. That's where we're founded in the assurance of his commanding authority and power. He empowers the gospel message. I can save no one. But as this father does, and as the disciples learn, my declaration and my proclamation is come to Jesus. He has the power to save. He has power over heaven and earth. He has power over the seen and the unseen. He has power over the body, soul, and the spirit. He has power past, present, and future. And yes, there is a coming future, a promised future, of the consummation of the church's glorification. That is by the transcendent power and being for whom we are called Jesus the Christ. And we are Christians. So I keep before you that tension as well. There is a future consummation. And until then, we are to labor and be diligent and faithful in proclaiming that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Look at verses 26 and 27. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him, that is the child, the boy, greatly, and came out of him. And he, the boy, became as one dead. So that many said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. So the unclean spirit's immediate response to Jesus' rebuking command is unexpected. Did you expect that? If this was the first time you were reading it, it... I believe would have caught you unexpected that when Jesus commands him to come out of him and enter him no more, and as we've seen in other instances where Jesus has cast out the demons, here this demon throws this boy again triggered into a seizure with great violence and pain and anguish. So we're, it's unexpected to see the display of this demon affecting the boy this way again. And what's the result? Well, it's a death-like result to the boy. It looks like the boy is dead. These together further indicate that this episode is a special case, but Jesus' real power and presence provides a lesson in Christian faith. That's what I want you to hear carefully this morning. How the combination of this boy's diseased condition and the demon's caustic effects 
are interrelated is detailed by Mark for an example that Jesus is able to distinguish between deliver and restore body, soul, and spirit. It's a whole salvation. It's a salvation in view of resurrection. It's a salvation that promises release from this body of death. It's not like false philosophy of dualism that the the body is a prison house of the soul, that it's evil, that it's materially and inherently evil. No, it was created good. But from the effects of sin, it needs to be changed. Our bodies, our flesh and blood will undergo a change. Jesus is Savior of body, soul, and spirit. That's why the promise and the preview of resurrection is set before us. And the consummation includes glorification in the self-same body in which in God's sovereign purposes we were born into this world. Changed, but the same. Yes, that's a mystery. Paul says it's a great mystery. But Jesus in the resurrection is that which is set before us as the consummation of promised salvation. And so we get great comfort from this. We even get comfort from those, our loved ones, who have died in the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord, awaiting the prime of glorious resurrection. It's future projected in terms of how we are trusting and believing the Lord now. And here, this Father witnesses the power of Jesus. He believes that Jesus is the one who can distinguish, deliver, and restore his body soul and spirit of his afflicted son. But it appears that the boy is dead. Therefore, Jesus has power over the unclean spirits, but he failed to save the boy's life. Can you imagine the father's profound shock? Having come through all of this, and now he comes and Jesus commands the demon, finally, to be cast out. And his son before his very eyes crashes as if dead can you imagine the father's profound shock Jesus has power over the demon but it appears his son is dead I don't know what the father thought I I do think he was probably in shock many in the crowd sided with death many said oh he is dead he appeared to be dead so that many said oh he is dead Now, again, I don't think that's just idle conversation. I think people were gathered around there. I think people, no doubt, had witnessed and seen death before. And there were, this condition was more than just a fainting, I think. If it was a fainting, it was a very serious and deep kind of fainting to the extent that it appeared that the boy was dead. I don't know, maybe somebody checked his pulse. Maybe they checked to see if he was breathing. Uh, you know, maybe his frothing and his convulsions in all these ways the rigidity of his body, everything indicated that to the crowd, he appeared to be dead. And what about the disciples? What do you think their reaction was? I tried to put myself in their place as well. I mean, now Peter, James, and John have joined the other disciples as a part of this episode. They had just witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain. Could they make the, the faith transition to application here? It's a challenge for us. I want you to understand something. That's why I'm making this a point. A substantial detail throughout this incident is that demons do not have the prerogative to inflict death. That's consistently witnessed throughout the Bible. 
And does that theological truth grab you by faith? When it says here that the boy appeared to be dead so that people said he is dead. Put yourself in the place of the father. Put yourself in the place of the disciples. Hearing what the crowd says. He is dead. He's dead. Jesus failed. He cast out the demon, but the boy's dead. Scripture tells us demons do not have the prerogative of death. You remember the incident with Job? Where God allowed Job to be um, persecuted by the Satan, but he restricted the Satan from killing him. Even allowing for the horrific circumstances of the storms that killed Job's children. Do you remember in Egypt, God sent forth the messenger of death for the firstborn that were not covered by the blood? That was all God's doing. Demons do not have the prerogative to inflict death. That's the lesson of faith. And while this boy appears to be dead, this is the point that we need to hold on to. And so we must not miss the obvious faith lesson here, contrasting physical sight with faith. How things appear to our human experiences and the unseen but greater reality of the imminent presence of Jesus by the Holy Spirit in and with Christian believers. This is the obvious lesson here. The boy looks dead, but he's not dead. I hope you saw that when we read there that the Lord Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up. Because he was not dead. Remember from the scope of this story, after we have been read in on the glory vision of the transfiguration coming down from the mountain, the conflict continues with the world disputing over who Jesus Christ is. The flesh, the inability of the disciples, the father, the boy, the scribes, the crowd, the inability of them all to help the father and the son, and the devil, the malicious and compounded cruelty of a real supernatural presence, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Jesus scolds a faithless, unbelieving, or weak faith generation in this episode. Back at verse 19, that's where he focused on. Oh, you of little faith. Oh, you weak believers. How long will I bear with this generation? The distressed father's one-sentence prayer resonates with all Christian believers as a prayer of saving faith and the source of all our prayers. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. As we are in conflict with the world, the flesh, and the devil. doesn't matter whether it was 2,000 years ago or as I gave you uh, some application and comments and observations from Calvin from 500 years ago or today, we are in conflict with the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's the theological perspective. That's the reality that is not bound by time and that's a part of the past, present, and future of our engagement as the kingdom of God on earth. So Jesus' commanding presence and words over the unclean spirit also reveal his transcendent being as his life restoring touch proves his imminent attention. Jesus took the boy by the hand and raised him up. And Matthew and Luke say that he cast out the unclean spirit and he cured and healed the boy 
and gave him back to his father. Now, from these observations, when the disciples are back privately with Jesus, they ask him the question that's on all our minds. In verse 28, why could we not cast it out? I want to return to the conclusion of this, particularly also drawing on uh, Matthew's account to give us further information and application about what Jesus says in answer to that question. Why could we not cast him out? Why are we so weak? Why did we fail? Where is our faith and how are we to understand our faith in view of conflict with the world, the flesh, and the devil? So we'll continue here in Mark 9 next time, hoping and praying that God will indeed build us up in the most holy faith, once for all delivered to the saints. Our con- uh, parting hymn this 